Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Thanks for checking out this feed of my favorite interviews and best guests over the last seven years. Whether it's your first time or you're already in a deep dive, make sure you head to BillSimmonsInterviews.TheRinger.com for the entire archive. You can sort by genre, year, and more to easily navigate all your favorite people. Again, that is BillSimmonsInterviews.TheRinger.com. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Matt Damon is here. Um, the last podcast we did, which was a year ago. Was, was it that long already? One of the most popular podcasts I've had in the last like five years. And oh, good. I feel like this is, as a sequel, I don't want this to be like Fletch 2. <laughs> I didn't even know Caddyshack they made Fletch 2. 2. <laughs> Some of the other bad sequels. I'm hoping, don't say like, any of mine. I don't yeah. think it'll be Godfather 2. You don't do sequels. I guess you just I, did, I did Born. Born in Oceans. Oh. What was the, what was the most maligned Oceans sequel? The second. But now it's. I thought it's come around now. People I think it's. I think it has. It was. It was Soderbergh's favorite of them. Yeah. So, but know. people were mad when it came out because it was too meta. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I haven't seen it, and I mean, I would have to go back and watch it. But right, it was that thing of Julia Roberts playing herself, and right, right, and or, or and Bruce Willis or think, thinking Julia thinking. Yeah, her character was Julia Roberts, mistaking her. Yeah, people just. I think. What year was that? We shot it in 04. Yeah, because that was right. So the last 15 years, and then when Twitter became involved, really people just getting pissed off for about, about movies and well, people were probably always forums. that pissed off. Yeah, they, they just, just didn't had a have, place. Right, just had a place to voice it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had no idea how mad people. Were. <laughs> <laughs> what was the maddest people have been at a Matt Damon movie? Uh, probably Ocean's I, Twelve, right? Um. I, I, I don't know. I don't Bagger Vance? I mean, I, I certainly have my own feelings. About it. <laughs> it's hard. It's all, you know, it's that thing. It's you, it's so hard to make a good movie and, uh, and, uh, and you don't work any less hard, nor do the hundreds of people who work on the movies. You don't work any less hard on the movies that aren't good. Yeah. Right. It's, it really is the same workload. It's not like the great ones require more. It's just that they came together, you know, in, in, in a way that the others didn't, but, um, Downsizing was one that people weren't sure about, and now it seems like that's coming around a little. Oh, I wouldn't know. You you'd know better than I would. Yeah. I, I love it. I mean, it's Alexander Payne is a is one of the great filmmakers on the planet. And look, he he totally delivered for me. What he said to me was he was going to make a Hal Ashby movie with special effects. Yeah, uh, and that's what that movie is. And I, I don't know if we if we. If it just wasn't what people were expecting, which means maybe we were a little too tricky in the marketing by by 
I think people might have been expecting like me and Wig to just be downsized and to be like zoinks, they're small, you know, and like and maybe we Yeah. And and yeah. and 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 if you set people's expectations up for something, then then you don't deliver that, you're gonna be they're they're gonna be disappointed. And that really is and that's fair. You you should you should show them the movie that you made. You know what I mean? You should you should sell them the movie as 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 it is. You know, you, you should you shouldn't try to do a bait and switch, which I don't think we were doing. I think I think the idea was we want to save the reveal that she doesn't downsize. She chickens out. And yeah. it was like this great reveal when you read the script. And it was really funny. And suddenly this guy is a bachelor living in leisure land in a condo. And, it's like, <laughs> and he's five inches tall, right? And he's got to put his life back together. And so, but I don't think anybody saw it because it's just such a dramatic left turn. And he falls in love with a one-legged Vietnamese political dissident. And, you know, he, there's that great line that I have in that, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it, but like, who would have thought like 10 years ago that I'd be, dry, you know, going down the, you know, in a Norwegian fjord, going to meet the great, you know, and I named yeah. the scientist with it. And it's just the most ridiculous thing that, you know, and, and he's five inches, I'm five inches tall. I'm going, you know, it's this, and that's what I loved about it. It was unlike any other movie that I'd ever seen. And that's, that's what I think movies should be. Um, you know, uh, they should push us you know, a little bit and, and entertain, but they have to entertain us too. And, and, uh, in that case, I don't know. I mean, I had lunch with Alexander afterwards and, um, kind of an after action taco down at tacos, por favor, <laughs> give them a little plug, <laughs> just sitting there at tacos, por favor going like, what happened, man? Like, boy, that didn't work. Like, what was it? But, but the thing about great directors, legitimately great directors is every shot in that movie is so meticulously designed. Like it's going to age well, you know, it really is the best expression of that idea. It just seems that people weren't interested in that story. We just did a rewatchables podcast on The Shining, which is basically almost 40 years old, summer 1980. Yeah. I didn't even know that that movie like basically bombed. And people were mad when it came out and they didn't understand it and get it. And it took like eight years. Well, for Stephen, to even, Stephen King apparently still, I he heard was, he didn't like it. He like, was furious. Right, right. He thought he felt like totally betrayed by it. But well, it was, I haven't read, I never read the book, so I can't, I yeah. can't speak to what he might've been upset about, but it always just surprised me because it's such an iconic movie and it really, um, and Kubrick, I mean, I, I have a, I have a few different shining stories that I love. I don't know if we, how much time we have, but we have uh, a lot of time. What do you but mean? One you thing, sh- how do you have shining stories? You were well, in the shining. Well, no, but, uh, but I, I worked with, um, the production designer who, uh, the last film he did was the talented Mr. Ripley and, and he was Kubrick's guy. And he yeah. told me this great story about, about what, about when he was designing that, uh, movie, Stanley Kubrick had a, a, a scale model of, the Overlook, is it the Overlook Hotel? Yeah. yeah the, the Overlook Hotel in their production office. And they would stand around and this is like 1978 or nine. And he would set these lights on, you know, to, to shoot this little hotel. He would set miniature lights and he would get them. He would take hours doing this while his production heads were, st- were standing around. And then he'd take a photograph and then he'd hand it to an assistant who would go and run off. And this is before one hour photo. He'd go yeah. And r- run off and develop it and come back with an eight by 10. And Kubrick would look at it for about five minutes. And then he'd put it down and he'd go back and he'd start setting the lights. And uh, this is Roy Walker telling me this story. And yeah. The legendary guy. And, and, and this process would go on for days. But what Roy said was 
what was incredible was when you were on the set, Kubrick could come up with some algorithm by which he could kind of transpose the numbers of the light. So he would get the, he would set it just how he wanted. And then he would record what each light was at. He knew his sources were coming from exactly the same place in the big world when he did it. And he came up with this algorithm by which he could just go and he had all the things set and he would just set the lights up. And Roy said, you could hold the eight by 10, stand in the hallway, hold the eight by 10 in front of your face and pull it away. And you would see the exact same thing that he'd shot on the miniature model, um, which is just like the level of in, it just artistry slash insanity and obsession is just so well, beautiful. I mean, that's why me, people are convinced that all of these different things are in that movie because their whole point is like, this guy was a genius and a lunatic yeah. and every single thing was in there for a reason. Yeah. So there's like, people think it's about, you know, the native American genocide and there are yeah. like all these yeah. different clues. Yeah. And one of them is this, it's, I think it's coffee or something, but it's Calumet and it's, it's like an Indian chief on the, on the can and he turns it in ways so that it kind of mirrors what's happening with the characters and people, but there's actual video of him moving the cans yeah. in this little room. No, there's nothing that, like, so to bring downsizing back into it, watching how meticulous Alexander is about everything in his frame. There's no, there's no, any of these directors, there's nothing arbitrary yeah. that's in a frame of a movie. There's nothing that hasn't been thought about. There, there have been meetings and conversations about every color, every, every single thing in that entire palette that's being presented to you has been discussed for hundreds of hours. So and do you think they see that in their head, almost like a little kid, like with a short story in their head and they just have to hit the beats that's in their head? I wonder what the I process think people, is. I think people do it, they all do it really differently. You know, yeah. I think some people work thematically and they go, well, here we want this kind of light and this because this is the characters in this place. And they're kind of kind of going through the character and the prism of what's happening for the character and 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 everything's extending out of that. And and other people probably like Kubrick. I don't know what was happening in his brain. Well, it's probably Nobody the does. weird photo stuff, and like every he probably had every frame. I, I know out. that I've I've heard like uh, like David Fincher, um, who's Soderbergh's best one. friend. Like fin so, I've done eight movies with Soderbergh, but I have never worked with Fincher. But Ben worked with Fincher. Affleck did, and I uh, oh for Gonger. Yes, and so I went down and visited the set one day, and 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 what what I've heard from both Stephen and from Ben, having worked with him, is it, it's it's it's. Fincher is like, has that Kubrick thing. Like he can't unsee what he sees. Yeah. Right. And so I sat behind him one day while he was directing. And it was this scene where Ben and Rosamund Pike walk into this bookstore. And so the camera was down the aisle of books. So it sees them down the aisle, open the door, come in. And then as they walk down, these, the camera dollies with them at the far end of the bookstore and walks down. And then they eventually enter an aisle. The camera stops. They enter up the aisle towards the camera and they end up kissing each other in, in this section of, the, this, of the bookstore. So it's like a, probably a 90 second shot yeah. where, while they're talking. And, and, and when the camera rolled, like Fincher's got this big monitor in front of him with, with you know, it's everything is time, everything is exactly as it's going to appear in the movie. And he's, and he's set all these levels himself and he's sitting there and, and, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm behind him and I've got headphones on so I can hear the scene. And, and he calls action. They call background, which is for the, the extras, the people in the bookstore. And then they yeah. call action. So when he calls background and then action, a, a, a background actor walks across the frame. All right. Then Ben and Rosamond enter the bookstore and the scene's about to start. 
But Fincher is already monologuing. He's going, who the fuck walks like that? And, it, and it's the background artist that he's, that has, it just, it just instantly caught his eye. He goes, I mean, what the fuck was that? What the fuck, who the fuck walks like that? Nobody walks like that. Been, now Ben and Rosmond are on the other side of this bookstore and they're doing the scene. But Fincher's just still talking about this. And I'm sitting here going like, oh my God, they're definitely going to do the scene again. Yeah. Like this take is completely. It's shot. It's shot. It's just shot. And so they get through the whole scene. They're acting their hearts out. It's, it's great, but it doesn't matter because the, the scene ended before it began. And Fincher goes, cut. And he takes the headphones off. He's like, I mean, what the fuck was that? And he looks at me. Now I know what he's talking about. The background artist was told to go from point A to point B. And they were not thinking about anything other than going from point A to point like B. Like a zombie. And it yeah. looked ridiculous. He's not wrong, but it's just not worth it's like, okay, just make a note of that. But it just ruined the whole thing for him. And, and we're sitting there. And as we're talking, a makeup artist comes on because Rosamond's still in the frame and she's going to like powder her forehead or whatever. She comes on and, and David goes, I mean, that's how you walk. Like, you know, because she yeah. had a place to go. She had a reason to go there, right? And so she's not thinking about walking. She's thinking about, I got I to gotta do my touch-up. I only have about 10 seconds. I got to get out. We got to do the scene again. So... I think, you know, and, and I, I think for people like that, it's almost like a curse, you know? Like, I remember when uh, he made, uh, uh, with the famous Swedish books, uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Right. And I asked Stephen, it was, the movie was going to come out within a month. And I was like, how, how was it? I read the books. I, I'm dying to know. I mean, and Stephen goes, I haven't seen it yet. I'm like, what are you talking about? He hasn't shown it to you yet, like of all people. And he, he goes, no, I literally think there's like a monitor, a computer screen in one shot in the background. And he's still trying to set the level of that. Like he goes, he can't unsee what he sees, you know, and, and that's the, the, that's the genius, right? It's, I mean. What'd you think of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I haven't seen it yet. Cause I was shooting, not, not for any other reason other than I was on set in France. And so you don't want a blog post headline tomorrow? Matt Damon refuses to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. No, I'm dying to see it, actually. Well, that's your rival, Leo. I've been trying to start that rivalry forever. I don't think it's going to You know where I am. I'm Team Damon. Well, thank you, man. He's a great guy, though. He's he's lovely. Departed, you guys went head-to-head. We did. We did. I had a ball working with him. He's he's great. Um, And and that movie was, if you you gave me what movies am I most excited about coming this fall, it was like that and The Irishman. I was just dying to see those. The reason I was interested in what you thought of it was because the Brad Pitt part was, I mean, he's amazing in it. And you know him and you have a whole history with him. But that part, it would have been interesting in different people's hands. You were one of the people, you could have played, I think, either part in that movie or at least made a run at it. Um, I'll have to see it. But there's not a lot of like great A-list parts like that. No, there's not a lot of great A-list parts uh, because movies are changing. The natures of movie, the nature of movies are 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 changing. Are in the middle of changing because of the 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 disappearance of the DVD. Well, this movie you're in now, which I'm going to talk about in a second, I think has two really good parts. But Talented yeah. Mr. Ripley was 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and I think it was like December. And when that's it came movie, out, we shot it 21 years ago. Yeah. yeah. And that's a movie that I'm positive would not get made now. Or if no, it got made no, now, it would no. be all actors nobody had ever heard of. Yeah, but I mean, even then it was hard to make. I mean, we made it for $37 million, which was a really, that's not a big budget for that movie. For the scale that that movie has, I mean, we were working six-day weeks and working long, long hours. I mean, it was, it was that was a labor of love for everybody who did it, definitely. Um, and uh, It's on cable a lot, which it? means... Although the young people don't even watch cable anymore, but it seems yeah, like know what that is. there's still an audience for it. <laughs> right. 
Um, which I, I think seeing that movie in 1999, I would not have guessed that that movie was going to have legs. I thought it was great, but I, I was surprised by the rewatchability of it. Oh, that's good to know. That's It's good when they're rewatchable. It's I always like, thought that's how you should judge the movies, right? It's, like, it's got to be part of it. Yeah, the Martian's I, like that, too. The Martian's really rewatchable. You give it more time. You never know. The Bourne movies? Yeah. What's those. the most rewatchable Bourne movie, though? Or what was uh, your favorite? Come on, you can pick now. You're almost 50. <laughs> uh I always really liked the, the the second one. I think the third one was kind of hit the zeitgeist the most. It was like the right movie for that time. It kind of, we were riding on all, all we had kind of the, the wind at our backs for the third. But the second one, I felt, I really, I always liked it because it was really dark. Uh, the, you know, she, her getting killed at the beginning and uh, yeah. it was unexpected, especially after we'd, you know, we took all this, tra- it was like we had to fight to get her in the first one, right? Because it's like, well, who is she? She's European. And Doug Lyman, who directed it to his credit, said, I don't buy this this American guy with amnesia being over in Europe and bumping into another American. Like, yeah. what, what's that? Like, that's crazy. Um, and uh, and I think, you know, and I, and I remember at the time it was like Jennifer Lopez was interested and there were like big names that were interested in that role. And Doug really fought to have a lesser known European actress um, and, uh, and she was amazing. And so you go to all that, you know, you fight for somebody who you believe in because she's great. And then you, you, you kind of, it, it, it all works out and she proves to be like one of the best parts of the movie. So you, and you start the second one with her getting killed. It was really surprising. And, um, but also it was also the only way to get that character going again. Right. Because he's like, I'm out and I have this and I have a reason to live. And so it's like, if you, you know, it, it, it propels that it's propulsive. Right. And, uh, and then, and you're also with him cause you're pissed off too. Cause you love her too. Right. Um, but at any rate, it goes from that kind of out of a cannon start to, and it ends with an apology. He ends up going to this person and taking responsibility for what he did. And that's why the original John Wick worked. Yeah. They killed his dog. They shouldn't yeah, have done that. They shouldn't have done that. And then the premise you're in from the echo, take it and Liam Neeson, they took his daughter. He's got to go it. get her. That's it. You got to If you can it. explain an action movie in like eight words, you're good. It's going to, it's, it's so going to work every time. It's so true. That's uh, well, what happens to old man born. Are you still making born? I mean, in like 2038, uh, I don't know. I don't know what will happen. I mean, <clears throat> he's at a nursing home and he's at a nursing home, but Normandy or something. Yeah. I don't know. And he just can't remember. <laughs> he can't remember why he's here, why he likes tapioca. Can't remember where they left the Jello. <laughs> um, no, if the, if anybody ever came up with a story, I'd 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 do it. I love the character, but um, but I don't know. There was always that inner thing that propelled him, right? Which is he didn't have his memory, and I think we've we keep getting it back in stages. I think we've got my memory back four times. What kind of level does of CTE does board have? It's I know like, it's, it's really like the bad. last level. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a lifetime of cage fighting. He just doesn't remember anything. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, Restrictions all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, 
a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Edward Norton was here a few weeks ago. Oh, man. Great. He's in on Rounders, too. Everybody's in. Everybody's Every in. Every single person is in, but I have a new plan. What's that? Netflix. Maybe they do it. Yeah, I bet they Netflix would. Does, I, I don't know who owns the rights. I don't know if that's if, open on a Friday. People are watching Rounders too. I think so too. I think I think it would be great. Do it in um, ten weeks. I could. I would do it. I would. Do, I mean, I'm telling you. I mean, and I know Edward wanted to. I mean, we talked He's about in. it. Yeah, we talked about it years ago. And Brian and David have a great idea. Like, I we we really should do it. Edward seems a seems concerned about what happens to Worm and how much he'll be in it. I don't think he wants to be your caddy. I think he want he really wants Worm to I, I be agree. drawn out as a real character, which I agree with. But I agree that that's what people liked about the first one. Yeah, right? he was, and I, I don't ever feel like. I mean, he got to do this really colorful thing, but he was the co. It felt like the co lead. You know what I mean? And 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 that's what everyone loved, and they love. And it's that dynamic, right? It's that friend you have that always, you know, he's going to screw it up for you. Yeah, you know what I mean? And that's really, that's and I we think have the it, history. That, yeah, you just, you the history is always going to win. So anyway. what's happened to them, right? I mean, Worm can't have been making really awesome decisions for the last no. 20 years, right? So what <laughs> stage is he going to be in? Like, what trouble in, like, the Costa Rican offshore, you know, gambling house is he in, right? right. At the, like, you know, I, I'm in a bit of a spot here, Mike. They want to well, kill me, right? It's like something you can see. There, there are a lot of different ways to go. Wealthy Mike McDee, I think, is... That would work, and then Worm coming back because he needs money, right? And he knows. But also, but meanwhile, there's this other revolution happening in poker, right? Which is the the Doyle Brunsons and all those people who were just running the game when we made rounders. And now uh, the common thing it was like, hey, it's a skill game, and these are the best in the world. Suddenly, these kids came up online, yeah, from like Sweden, you know, right. and I, like they've been playing ten hands at a time since they were twelve years old, and by the time they show up for a live game, they're like AI, you know, they walk yeah. in and they're and they're playing. And I was talking to Koppelman about it a few years ago, and he's saying it's the game has gone so deep into like game theory, like it's a, just an unrecognizable game the way it's played by this new generation. So it'd be interesting to watch Mike go back. You know, he was the young kind of upstart; he was kind of proved himself worthy in the game. But like now, this new group is coming in of like it's gonna take him down, right? And that and that and that and that they are taking the game. They're they're like destroying everybody in their path. They're literally doing stuff with analytics where they're they're playing hands online the way they wouldn't play them, just so that they throw off their profile because people are reading everybody's hand histories. Right. They're sabotaging their, their own hands. They're sabotaging their own. It's what Tony Romo called out Belichick for. Uh it was one of this great calls that Romo had a few a year ago or two where where the other team, I can't remember who we were playing, was coming down. And the game, we were up by three scores, and there's like five minutes left. And Belichick put this put his defense in, and they instantly, right before they snapped the ball, Roma goes, oh, this is so gross. This is so sick. And he, and, the, and, the, and whoever's doing the end is like, what do you mean, Tony? And he's like, oh, he never does this. He's just trying to mess with the analytics right now. Like he was literally putting in a package that yeah. he that he knew would get run all over because he was going to concede the score because it didn't matter at all for the game for the outcome of the game and because he wanted he wanted the uh, he wanted other coaches to be like flim flammed they're like well what does he do in this situation well sometimes he does this and sometimes he does that no he always does the same thing there but he doesn't want you to see I believe he does all that stuff so I am I. I am still in the corner that the Seattle Super Bowl which we actually probably watched together that he was reading the sideline on the other side. Seattle, he saw the chaos and anyone else would have called timeout. 
but he saw something he liked and just decided to ride it out. And people are like, that's crazy. There's no way he froze. I don't know. I mean, you're, he was depending on Butler. If you remember that play, so Butler smacks, was it Tlaib who was right in front of him? So so Butler walks up behind him. They were stacked up against yeah. each other, right? Now, I, Tlaib, I never played football. I thought but, Tlaib but, sna- slapped Butler, right? No, I thought Butler or was one behind him. So other. Butler walks up and slaps Tlaib. In other words, to say, get firm on this guy at the line. Don't let him push you oh, off. Yeah, yeah. I'm coming in right here. Like literally came right off his ass and and – and because he recognized it because because Butler had been beat by that play in practice. Right. And he got a he got a talking to from Belichick. So he so my recollection is that that so if that's that's Belichick going like, I'm going to trust that Malcolm remembers that this happened. And, you know, that's a that's a that's I don't a think I don't think he was thinking that. I think he was thinking. They seem out of control. Whatever they're going to do on this play is probably not going to work. Let's ride it out. Maybe it'll be a pass. We'll get an incompletion. I'll stop the clock anyway. I don't know what he was thinking, but I don't he's either. staring across the sideline, watching them the same way you would watch like somebody's house from across the street. Yeah. I just, I, I think he it goes back to the Kubrick and uh, Fincher and those guys. I think certain people are just different. We're not going to understand them. I don't know what he does 10 years from now. I, I think he's, I don't know why until- he didn't start Malcolm Butler in the Philly Super Bowl. Well, that I, one, and, and, I, and we'll never know the story. Well, I, mean, I don't know why. I mean, it's like you've won so many Super Bowls. At least tell us. Give us some reason why when we are getting, when they literally couldn't stop us. Did we punt? We didn't punt in that game. Patriots didn't punt. I don't, I don't Tommy think so. threw for what? 900,000 yards in that game? <laughs> like set every record. They could not stop him. They could not stop him. Are you worried this is our last year with him? No, I, I, I I'm no, no. I think I know it, you know. I know you know what he's doing. I don't know. I've, no, I have not had that conversation. Hey, man, what's going no, on? No, 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 no. I wouldn't. I, I, it's 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 private. It's his business. I would never ask him that. And I, and I don't have that kind of relationship with him. I'm always really happy to see him. And, yeah. and like, I think the world of the guy. But Are you happy um, to see him because he's one of six Super Bowls? I mean, Is that one of the reasons? I, 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 lo- I, I love watching people who are that dedicated to what they do. And he, yeah. he works so hard. And most of that work you never see. And I just admire that in people. I, I, I admire it in people in any field that they're in that, that, that go after excellence to that degree. It's, it's awesome. And, uh, and it's inspirational and it makes me better at my job. But, but I, but I think, I think he, I think what's happening with him, like these people, like the decline of Tom Brady and it's his age, like he's in better shape now than he was when he was 24, without a doubt. And you just, you just got to protect him. They just need to. They just need to protect him. You know, the line. We've got all these injuries. We got people moving around. If if you protect him and give him receivers who can get separation, I'll take him over any quarterback in the NFL. So we're taping this the day after the Ravens game. Yeah, which I actually feel like they needed because today has been a whole day of, oh, Brady's old. Pats don't have well, it's it. Gonna, it's it's our, like, this is great. We're back. It's our bye week, and we're going to hear two weeks of this yeah, nonsense. And people screaming at each other on ESPN. Awesome. You know, Everyone like, it's over. It's over. Yeah. It's like, you know, Coming up next. Yeah. I'll tell you why. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All that stuff. No, nothing's changed. I mean, it, people say, you know, they just look at his numbers and say his production is falling off. And you just go like, I mean, okay, he doesn't have Gronkowski this year. You know what I mean? Like, it would have been, you know, you know. The Ben Watson play, that was Gronk catches that every time in the second half. Right. The 25-yard seam route. Right. Watson drops it. Yeah. Gronk I mean, makes that play. Yeah. And uh, and and Watson normally makes that play. Right, right. I mean, that just that didn't go our way. But, uh, but, but look, there, you know, Sanu was great. 
And that Sanu was senior. Yes. Yeah, Sanu senior was awesome. That was exciting. And Edelman's always <laughs> great. His, our set. We have two seniors now. Well, yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's a big one. It's a bold move it's to throw the move. senior on your, uh, uh, on, on your, your own uniform. name. Yeah. I like it. That's good. <laughs> but uh, so I, I don't know. I think, you know, when Isaiah Wynn comes back, like we'll, we'll see, you know, if they can protect him, it's like, you know, I don't know. Would you want to be 42 years old and like, I don't know how he does it. I don't, it's like, well, he's also, he's the thing I've noticed this year. It does take him maybe a quarter to heat up sometimes the old guy thing, but he's like a car, but he just doesn't take any hits. He doesn't have to take anymore. It's like, you talk about like Fincher and our brain works. Yeah. He's, he's assessed all of the risk in every game. And it's like, if we run this play and it's not there, in 2.1 seconds, I'm throwing the ball away. Yeah, which I love. I'm not getting hit. And I think, I think actually, younger quarterbacks should look at that. Yeah, like Baker Mayfield. This like, is his because you issue. sit there and you go like, you know, or Jimmy G getting hurt last year. Like you sit there and you go like, I can keep this play alive. Like young quarterbacks try to win the game on every play. Right. And what what Brady's doing now is what Manning was doing at the end of his career. It's like I got an idea of how I can beat you. Yeah. And it's one idea. And I'm going to snap the ball and I'm going to look and go, nope, didn't work. All right, I'm going to try again. I got three chances to beat you. And that's how they're looking at it rather than like, it's got to be now. And they run around and they get scrambled. They get their heads taken off or they get injured. I remember his first or second year, he was scrambling to the right and just got absolutely tattooed by somebody. It was like against Pittsburgh. It was one of the conference people and bounced up. But it was like he would five years ago, those days were over where he would never take a hit like that. Yeah. And I mean, by the way, he, he, you're taking a lot of hits anyway. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like when they say, oh, quarterback hits and hurries, like you still you're still in your 40s getting knocked down by a by a big, strong guy. 320 pound dudes. Yeah. Like most human beings have never been touched by a 320 pound professional athlete. I mean, it can't feel great. But can you believe how long this has lasted? I mean, think about what your life was like in 2001. I don't know what movie you're making that I year. Watch, I watched the You've made first like Super 10 Bowl. You've blockbusters since then. But I watched the, I, I know exactly where I was for every Super Bowl. And yeah. The first one was uh, against the Rams. I was in a Scottish pub in Paris. So we were doing reshoots on the Bourne identity. Oh. And, uh, and. The and, predated a board, all the board movies. Yes, the first Super yeah, Bowl. Yeah, the first Super Bowl. Yeah. And it was 2002. So the, the Bourne movie came out six months after it. Yeah, that summer. And we were picking up some shots in Paris and there was a Scottish pub near where we were shooting. And Frank Marshall, our producer, went over and he grabbed me because this is, you know, so he runs this Scottish pub. We can watch the Super Bowl in here tonight. I was like, oh, my God. So we, we go, <laughs> we, we, we get in there and it's illegal for them to have, you know, be up serving beer at, at you know, they're supposed to be closed at whatever, 1 a.m. And the Super Bowl comes on in Europe at, uh, you know, whatever, t- two in the morning. Yeah. So. We go in and uh, they've got blankets up around in all the windows to like black it, to black it out to the outside so no one knows we're in there. And every Scottish person in in Paris has heard that the bar is going to be open. So they're like they're all there because they're regulars at this Scottish pub. Right. Yeah. And they're instantly Patriots fans. They know nothing about American football, but they're all like, go Patriots! <laughs> because the Patriots are the reason that they're allowed to drink till six in the morning. So it was an awesome place to see that that Super Bowl. So when you're filming, you're just filming a movie in Paris. So how are you following sports? 
Well, like, I was how, just doing it. I was in Marseille like, for the last three months. Uh, like the Direct TV app. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, and and watching, uh, you know, watching on a sling box, you know, and 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 watching the game, like piping it into my hotel room through a computer and just watching it. So, but it's but the the night games are, you know, if I'm working Brutal, the next day, yeah. it's really tough. I mean, I for the Super Bowl, I would always stay up. The second the the second Super Bowl, we when we beat the Panthers, that was the night before I shot that apology scene in the Born Supremacy. So I was in Berlin. And I had the whole crew over and I stayed up all night because I was supposed to be ravaged in that scene. I'm supposed to be bleeding out. And I'm like, I have an idea. I just won't sleep tonight. Yeah. And, and you know, and I'll show up and I go. And, and so I did that scene just, you know, having just banged up, just just banged up and just did it. And it worked out great. Um, the but, last time you did the podcast, you didn't tell the story about the 2008 finals when you sat next to the Lakers bench. I, I didn't tell the story. No, you did not tell the story. It Can was, we tell the story? Well, first yeah, of all, I mean, Phil Jackson told you to fuck off. He told me to sit down and shut the fuck up. That's <laughs> what he told me. So what, what led to that? 2008 finals, you get into it with Phil Jackson. What happens? Okay, so we were, so we were. I think it was game five, I want to say. I can't remember now. Game, I think it was game four. The comeback game? No, well, we, he came, we came back in that game too. Yeah. This was in L.A., and but the game before we had been down like twenty three points in the third quarter and we'd come back and and won yeah so that game we're down it's they're at home the Lakers I mean and and we're down twenty one twenty two points in the third quarter and Paul Pierce just 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 goes full truth mode and yeah just goes bananas and 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 they they have this unbelievable comeback and Wahlberg was sitting like we had our agent has four floor seats and yeah. Wahlberg and I asked for two each and so we were the four of us were there um. And and we're up, we're standing up, and we're the only people on the floor who this are jumping. This is Game Four, two thousand eight finals. Yes, yeah, the and, comeback. End. And and we're and we're screaming, you know, it's 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 you know, we're 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 cheering on the Celtics as you do. And the, their run uh, was capped by I think Pierce kind of sliced through the lane, and like laid the ball in to to complete the comeback, right. Um, and, and the Lakers ended up winning that game, by the way. So this wasn't the game where we came back and won. This is a game we came back and lost. Okay. But, uh, but we won the series eventually. But when he completed this, this comeback in the third quarter, Phil, by the time he went up to lay the ball and Phil's already up cause he's calling a timeout cause he's got to stop the bleeding. And Wahlberg and I are like, Oh my God, man. And as he calls the timeout and he just spins on us and he goes, sit down and shut the fuck up. He's <laughs> so mad. <laughs> Which I get, look, it's like, you know, I can't imagine if I'm having a bad day at work and there are right. fucking people cheering for yeah, the, yeah. my, you know, my pain, right? So, but like, we're like, how's the Zen stuff working? <laughs> you know, it was great. Anyway, so that was my one factoring into the great tapestry of the Lakers Celtics rivalry. What about, but you saw Kobe on the bench too, being, being hard on his teammates, I thought. That was in there. I too. remember him saying, get them the fuck out of my way. Like he was just he was like he had that killer, like, yeah. just fucking clear everybody out. I'm doing it. Just get them the fuck out of my way. And like when 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 the game started, he ran past us and goes, Not tonight, motherfuckers. <laughs> like he was, you know, which is great. That's what you that's what you want. Your That's your, good. Deep your, down you admired it. Of course, of course. I like we like we all deep down admire the Lakers. We just could never say that. I'm still getting there. Really, with Magic Johnson? No, I admire those Lakers. This current Lakers team with LeBron and AD. I and haven't now, watched them play yet. I, I've been out of the country. But. I did some podcasts before the 
season, I was making fun of the Dwight Howard part of this. I was like, there's no way. I can't wait for the Laker fans to talk themselves into him. And he's been really good the first two weeks. Now the Laker fans are like, hey, hey, you chuck yourself into Dwight yet? Right, so right, right, it's right. going. It's good. It, but the Lakers, the Lakers-Boston thing is great. It's, it's, it's going to be there for our whole lives, and we hate each other. And then the Yankees-Red Sox thing is really fun, too. Although I wonder, like, do your kids... Do they care about baseball at all? Not really. I yeah. mean, they care. They see that their dad cares, so they, they, you know. I but, don't know what happens to baseball. I know. I'm uh, concerned. Yeah. I mean, I haven't looked at any of the numbers of viewership and stuff. It just feels kind of anecdotally like it's it's falling off. And yet, you know, uh, talking to people on the film set out in France, the Americans, the, you know, the, the people who are our age still, you know, that was we we were following that series kind of online. The the, the the Nationals uh, Astros series. It definitely comes and goes faster. Like I remember the like the Diamondbacks Yankees World Series, whatever yeah. that was game 7. Yeah, Schilling. I feel like everybody I knew in my entire life watched that game. Well, that and was 2001. That was yeah. right after 9/11 too. Yeah. And that was the game where they had just they had just taxed. Buster only wrote a really good book about that yeah, series. Yeah. He did. Last I, days I, of the Yankee Dynasty. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, which is why any <laughs> Boston people like it's called Last Days of the Yankee Dynasty. I want to read that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> But his point, which was really good, was they had, they had just relied so much on Rivera because Rivera was just, I mean, the greatest of all time. And 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 he just got to that. I mean, I remember Mark Grace's at bat in the ninth inning of that game. He started it off and everyone was talking about it. Nobody could get away from Rivera's cutter. Yeah. And Grace had that beautiful swing and he's just sitting there. And that first cutter came in and it just missed. And I think some, you know, maybe it was... Joe, uh, Tim McCarver, somebody said like, that was like his entire, like an entire career of being like a world-class hitter for him to understand that not to swing at that, you know, and Grace ended up working and he, and Grace, I think hit the, had the most solid base hit in, in that inning. Cause remember yeah. Gonzalez's little flair yeah, thing. A and that's a guy who went from hitting, what was it? Like it was like eight home runs to, to hitting to 57 or whatever it is. And, like, and you're like, sure. Right. Yeah, what a coincidence. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and even he, with that body of his could only kind of barely get that thing. I mean, it was a very unlikely win for that team. And Costner was on this pod like about three, four months ago. And he was talking about for love of the game. And he told this story that I actually thought was going to be a bigger deal. I'm not one of those like, man, I hope this blows up. But he's basically like, they're making him throw 200 pitches a day or whatever. And he was getting help from the Yankee training staff. And by the end of the filming, he had to do this one long day where, and he just like his shoulder was shot. And they basically asked the Yankee trainer, and this was like 1999, like, whatever you've been afraid to give me before, give it to me today. And the guy's like, all right, this is going to make you growl a little. And gave it to him. <laughs> and Coster went out and threw for like seven hours. Wow. And was like barking at people. And I was like, this is great. We finally have a direct tie to the Yankees. Right, 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 right. During the, during the uh, four World Series, but nobody cared. No, it had been like the Patriots, everybody. Was <laughs> oh, it was Belichick. Yeah, Can you yeah, imagine yeah. if the New England Patriots trader had said something? Yeah. Um, this movie you just made, first of all, I really liked it. Good. I liked it too. I like I movies with like stars just being stars and a plot I can understand. What I wasn't expecting was how like gripping the last 40 minutes were. Yeah. It's really like, yeah. You know, sometimes you, it's like, oh, I bet there's going to be a big race. But the, the whole thing is just, and everybody in the theater was like super quiet. People are just really into it. It's really good. Great. Thanks, man. I'm, I'm really happy with it. And I don't, you know, it's, <clears throat> you don't get a lot of scripts. It's like going back to the, once upon a time in Hollywood, 
where it's where it's you know an original idea that is not franchisable. It's not you know the, there aren't a lot of opportunities to do that anymore, and and they're becoming fewer and fewer. So yeah, it was a, it was it was an easy yes for me because he's a great director, you know, which is the first thing I look for. So Jim Mangold is he did. Walk the Line and and Logan and I mean, yeah. it's just great. Um, and he'd worked with Christian before on Three Ten to Yuma, which was an underseen, really good western. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah, with Christian and Russell Crowe, it's really good. Um, and uh, and so that and so Jim doing it and then being able to work with Christian, I was like, this is a this is a no brainer. And he did it again. He created some character that was some new version of Christian Bale. Yeah, I mean, there's <clears throat> the uh, the guy that he plays is a real. Uh, guy named Ken Miles and uh and there was some existing footage of of Ken and and uh Christian does a really good job of inhabiting that. Are you ready to hear from the car nerds? Uh, yeah, I mean I, I think I've are already the car, I'm no, a, the G, that's not a real GT forty I could tell because the back of well, like they're all gonna come out. Well one we did we did some press with these car magazines and car shows the other day and on one podcast the guy was like, well you know, or in one of the interviews he goes, I mean I you know I was I liked the movie so much that I was willing to forgive the things that weren't true. And Christian goes, hang on, you know, we were doing the thing together. And Christian goes, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, let's dig into that. What do you mean? Wasn't what details weren't true? And he goes, well, Carol Shelby was six, <laughs> three. I'm like, that's what bothered you. My height. <laughs> that's the problem. That's the problem. You, the this issue you have you with it. This happened to you with the uh, rugby movie. Yeah, no, exactly. I, 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 I what tend was to. guy's name Botha? No, Francois Pinar. Francois Pinar. <laughs> yeah. Both is the boxer. Both is the boxer. I knew it was no. a Francois. Francois Pinar. And, and South Africa just won the uh, World Cup. Yeah. Um, but that guy was like 6'5". He was he was even bigger than Shelby. I mean, he was much bigger than Wait, Shelby. So he looked like guy, a linebacker. That guy won Le Mans and he was 6'3", crammed in like a 1955 yeah. Porsche? Some of those guys are tall. Like the like the GT40 had a little bubble on on the driver's side and it was called the Gurney bubble because Dan Gurney was 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 pretty tall. Um and and the only way, I mean, I get in that car and it's like, you know, that when the door opens, the roof opens with it, you know? So if you're tall, it's going to take your head off when you shut it. The whole thing comes and closes on you. So even I get in there and I'm like, this is. It's funny because there's this whole market for those cars from the 60s and 70s. I love those cars. Like yeah, those they're beautiful. Old... They're, yeah. But thing is, if you're driving any of those around in LA, it's like in any pothole or. Oh, I mean, yeah. If you're, you're like, not. Where are you going to even drive that? I guess you'd have to live in the country. Yeah, and and also you, I mean, the systems in them, like the 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 brakes were the were the we- weakest link in the car, whereas now they're the strongest. Yeah, yeah. Malcolm yeah. Gladwell did that thing about it, uh, where he took a car to the test track and just you could just override the brakes are so good now that you can just override everything with the brake, even if your foot is on the accelerator. Um, whereas in, in in '66 when these guys were racing, those brakes were like melting, like they literally didn't know if the cars were going to stop, and they were yeah. going 230 miles an hour coming up at a wall, not knowing if they could stop. So I read you, you guys didn't film the racing scenes yourself because you would have thought like the actual, you had to, you had to do like a mix, right? Yeah. Well, some of it's, yeah. Second unit. Some of it's like real race car drivers. Yeah. Yeah. Doing it, yeah. So you did, it wasn't one of those things where they had you at the track for seven months trying to Christian learn. went Christian. Uh, Cause you, you, you want to look like, you know how to yeah. drive, right? You want your hands to be in the right place. And, and, but I'm, I'm saying like, he's not at, now he's not going to start entering tournaments because no, no. all the skills he's learned. No, that's the thing. It's like you, you kind of, as an actor, you end up as a jack of all trades and a master of none. You know, you know how to you know how to approximate how somebody does something, but that doesn't mean you can do it. I mean, these race car driving is like anything. It's like you, you, the the guys who are great have been doing it since they were 
little, little, little kids. And that's all they've been doing. Yeah, they were racing go-karts when they were like seven. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. What are some other weird things you've learned how to do? It can be really random, like like uh, the Born Supremacy, the, that scene where she gets shot, where the car goes off a bridge into the water. So I had to shoot a scene underwater where I was in a car underwater and I had to swim upside down and get air in the little corner pocket. And so... So it, it instantly, if you have any tendency towards claustrophobia or any, ten, you know, any yeah. fear of the water or drowning, and I don't have a fear of the water, but, but I, I worked with, I, I, I flagged it as something that might be a problem. Cause the other thing is you're going to get in a water tank, they're going to fill it with milk and a bunch of particulates so that it looks like a river and you're yeah. not going to be able to see, you know, so you're taking away like a few of your scent, you, you can't breathe, you can't see you're underwater and you need conditions to change to survive. So you're going to, you're instantly going to go into lizard brain a little bit. Yeah. But what they did was they just took me to a swimming pool and, uh, and we built out of PVC pipe, um, a car, like a box. Right. And we, we did it. I did it underwater. Like I put the thing together with, with the stunt guys. And then we would practice going down and swimming into it and sitting there and then taking my air away. And so it's all of this, these scuba diving techniques, but I never got certified as a scuba diver. Right. So it's like, I you know, at the end they were like, you should really just go get your scuba license because you've kind of done everything, but I just kind of never did it. But I learned how to be underwater without air and without being able to see, you know what I mean? And without panicking. So the goal is to make it look as seamless as possible. It's always a magic trick. So you just kind of troubleshoot. What is it that's going to make you think, see how I'm doing the magic trick. So in that scene, it's like, you get all those conditions. You have a bunch of different people, people who, under, who, who are underwater filming specialists or people, you know, you get the car, you, you make it safe. You make, you know, cause she's in that scene too. At, she's dead. She's already been shot. So, but she's still got to hold her breath and get her tank taken away. And you have safety divers with you and a whole system to kind of do it so that, and it's a really exciting, really tense sequence. And it's also a really emotional sequence, right? Because yeah. he's realizing as the audience is realizing, oh my God, she's dead. And he lets her go in the water and she floats away. And it's like, so it's a really important part of the movie. So um, then so, rounders, you learned how to play cards, but you, you actually like that. That was really you, fun. <laughs> well, that was, I mean, you because guys, you guys were all in casinos. We and and, and the, it was this really underground game then, right? Yeah. There were these clubs, and you had to get buzzed in through the door, and you had to go look up at the camera, like the way it is in the movie. You had to do that stuff, and Edward and I really got into it. I mean, we were in our late twenties, and it just felt really fun, like and cool, and it, you know, the, it was a different world. It's like you know, you're in New York City, and suddenly you take a right turn and go down a stairway, and suddenly. 
you know, you walk in and you hear the chips flying and the people, you know, and it's and it's like, oh, my God, this is like a whole subculture that I didn't know was here. What about rugby? Do you have to learn that whole thing? Well, I realized right away that that uh, that there's no way like unlike I'd done a football movie with school ties. Right. And it's like, all right, here's the play. And you do the X's and O's and, you know, you're going to run right between the guard and the tackle and you're going to, you know, and it's a very scripted thing, whereas rugby is just a free for all. Yeah. And I realized right away, like you get the ball goes down and you get in that like in the mall and in the thing and you go, there's no way to ensure that someone's not going to step on your face. And and if someone steps on your face with cleats, like the movie shuts down for a week while you heal. Right. And so so what we did, like most of that movie, we were shooting the rugby stuff and Clint Eastwood had his little monitor, you know, because he's out on the field watching the movie, you know watching what the camera's seeing and I'm standing next to him like going, Ooh, that looked tough. That, that, <laughs> that, oh, that looked painful. So I didn't do a lot of, you threw the rugby. big black in school ties though. What's that? You threw the big black in school. I ties. did. I did. Brendan Fraser just throws me down. Like, yeah. yeah. Would yeah, be the, another one. I forget. There's two good football scenes. I actually liked him as a quarterback. I thought he we was had a, realistic. Well, we had a kid named, it's, I believe his name was Billy Shar, and Billy was the quarterback at Syracuse. He yeah. took him to the peach bowl. And that kid, I mean, it was the first time I saw an NFL arm. Up yeah. Close. He didn't make it to the NFL, but he had an NFL arm. And I remember because we would have throwing competitions and I threw, I was 21 years old. I turned 21 on that movie and my best was 58 yards. I threw a football 58 yards. I was really proud of it. Billy would throw at 70 yards. Jesus. But more importantly than throwing at 70, 75 yards was he would throw at 40 yards on a rope. He threw the first time I... I did like a deep post just messing around. We were just kind of warming up. It was the weirdest thing. And I've subsequently read receivers who talk about, it. they go, you see the ball when it's halfway to you and you have a lifetime of like knowing how, you know, and it just gets there faster and it goes through your hands because you just weren't ready, you know? And it's it was, like a car speeding up or something. It, it feels like it speeds up. It's like that movie Fastball where they talk about that thing where the people say the, the ball rises because that's yeah. what it looks like. That's the phenomenon for them. It was it was it went through my hands and I was like, I I saw you throw it. There's nobody guarding me. It's not even yeah. like I, I'm just we're just messing around. And it was just this incredible velocity that it had. And I went, wow, that's another that's another level. Do you ever throw with Brady? No, I would love to. I would love it. We did the thing where where he and Jimmy came over and he threw the ball through the window. Did you see that? Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And he put it right on, they put that little sugar glass and that little, you know, little cross. I mean, he put the point of the football on that. Oh, so they didn't use like wizardry or anything? No, he threw a ball through the window. But like exactly in the spot that's, that he had. That's, he just did that. They were like, all right, so Tom, you want to throw it through that window? He's like, okay. Like Where's, the, where's the Kimmel feud stand these days? It's on hiatus? What happens? No, we're still, still going. It's still, I mean, we're still, I think he still ends the show that way every night. I haven't been seeing the whole show because I've been in uh, France, but I, uh, I, I've been watching a lot of his monologues. I usually try to see what, what he and, and Molly are up Did to. Did we ever point. talk about how I was working on the show when he started doing that? Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. That's why I moved to LA, to right for when he was launching it. Oh, my God. And the first couple months, we, we couldn't get any guests after the first week. Right, right. And Leno and... Uh, it was basically Leno, but it was just squashing Letterman too. But it was more Leno because it was the LA, LA show. New York. And yeah, if you're yeah, coming yeah. to LA, you're gonna pick one. Yes, eleven thirty. Yeah, 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 and yeah. so Leno was just basically like, if you go on Kimmel's show, you'll never come on mine. Oh, I didn't know that. So within a month, we're 
booking the who wants to be a millionaire run yeah. up winner and stuff like yeah. that. And it was so frustrating. And then at the end of the show, she started doing them. My apologies to Matt Damon. We ran out of time. It was like an inside joke that we couldn't get any guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as he described it to me, when I went to do that primetime thing, it was the first time I ever met him. Yeah. And I, I was like, what's the deal, man? Like, why me? Like what? And he goes, honestly, I just, he could have said anybody. Yeah. And he goes, I just said, he goes, I think I had a, a ventriloquist and a guy in a monkey suit as my, and, yeah, I, and I just, that's what it was like. And he goes, and I just said, my apologies to Matt Damon. He goes, and I saw my producer right behind the camera doubled over laughing. He goes, and I just started doing it. <laughs> but whenever I see him, it's just like, you know, he and Molly, you know, who's his wife and also his head writers, she's, you know, they're like, this behaves like no other joke in the history of, it's the same stupid joke. And, and he goes, it gets a lot. People are expecting it. And, it and people must ask you about it all the time, right? I, you and in airports and everywhere, people are like, you know, fuck Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> It's like a constant thing. Like, uh, what was the feedback for the Brett Kavanaugh stuff on SNL? I just got asked about that this morning on NPR. It was the first time uh, I, there wasn't much feedback uh, that that I, I mean, I just because I thought it was just really funny. <laughs> so like, it I. was fun to do like a cameo that you could play this really distinct. I just thought I don't think those celebrity cameos usually work for them, like in that kind of way. And uh -huh. I, thought, I actually thought that worked. I did too. I thought that because. Kavanaugh was so out of control in that hearing that yeah. like that all I had to do was just do what he did. Right. Like that weird sniffle thing. Like, you know, that, that like every time a woman questioned him, he's like, you know, like, <laughs> right. like what is up with this guy? And, uh, and, and so it, it's in you know, the beer stuff, like, you know, it's just, you just, to, to, and the th three friends that he had. Yeah. Right. Right. Squee. And Squee. he's starting to cry and it's like, Oh my God, this is like, you kind of dipped into the school ties guy for that character. Yeah, well, that's what bit. it is. Yeah, and that's, that's it's the boarding school dickhead exactly guy. what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just play that. So, guy. with the last time we did this, I didn't know. After 2017, you went away for a while. You took your family and you went. I did. I went to Australia. That was when because my, there were all these well, rumors it, online <laughs> that you moved to Australia and all this stuff. But you actually did go away for like nine months, right? Uh, it was like three, three or four months. Yeah. Oh, that was it. I yeah. thought it was longer. Yeah. No, we. It was. Uh, no, it was about three or four months. I think. Yeah. And what'd you do? Just camp? We did a lot Try of camping. Try to get away from civilization? Yeah. It was right after my dad died. And, yeah. And, uh, and we, we just, uh, um, I don't know. We, you know, we have friends down there for one. And then it was a place my dad had never been. I think maybe there was something about me that wanted to, you know, I don't know. Uh, but it just, but, but also so much kind of came rushing back to me about, about, my relationship to my dad and, and, you know, my brother and I would talk about it. Like we were suddenly started remembering all these like shitty camping trips, you right. know, like, you know, where, you know, where we go to, you know, th that weren't, I mean, I say shitty as a joke. Cause it's like, you know, you drive out to the Cape and you get a campground and, and, you, and it's like, and it's, and it's so awesome. And, yeah. uh, and I was like, well, let's make some, let's go on an adventure. Like, let's do something like we got this time with the kids. Let's go, let's just go. And your kids weren't like too old where it would have right. been, they would have killed them. They get pulled out of school it, for five months. Right. And all, no, well, we, well, we also like, we did it this year from, I think we went with, we brought two teachers with us. We went, let's go, let's really, and we, they were interacting with the school. And so it was like, the, Oh, that's good. Yeah. And those, I mean, and we're kind of used to that from movies. Sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll go and bring teachers who kind of interface with the school and, and academically the kids will get ahead. Like you don't, you don't want to do it too much, uh, I mean, just because school isn't just about obviously reading and writing, it's like the social stuff and the negotiation skills and all the stuff that goes along with, uh, with 
your development is so is so crucial to be around other 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 kids. And, yeah. Um, but uh, but to do it as an adventure and to really set it up with them as an adventure, like this is we're this is what we're doing because they, you know, we moved back to Boston for that year and my dad was sick. At yeah. The end. I mean, he was sick for years, but when he was really sick and and uh, and 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 it was a really tough year. But I'm glad that they got to see that they they got to. They got closure in a, in a, in a, in a, in I think a very healthy way. And they got to see what a family does. Right. And, right. and, and, and appreciate that and understand that. And, and so they understood that trip as, as, as what it was, right. Like a, like a, all right, you know, this is our, this is our family. Like, let's go. Right. It seems like you've really protected that family side. Like people don't know that much about what you're doing privately and, yeah. um, you have about as normal of a family life as you're going to have considering your position in life, you know, because I think it could go sideways in a lot of different ways. Yeah. In the wrong I, hands. It, it can, and it still can. I mean, there, there's, you know, the online stuff, like I, I you know, it, 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 kids will only start investigating, you know, they'll start investigating their. Yeah. When know. they're like 10. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, you know, which is now, you know, I've got a 13 and 11 and a nine year old. So um, that's weird. I remember my son, he was like nine or 10. He's like, dad, this thing on YouTube, this guy hates you. Right. I'm right. like, why are you, why are you looking at me on YouTube? He's like, I don't know. It's funny. Like, right. It's like, <laughs> right. Right. And, but, but, but look, that's great that he says that so that you have that, you know, yeah. so that you can, you can, uh, you can w- work it through with them. Right. Right. It's like, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's a, that's definitely a consideration and, um, because you just don't want it to infect your dynamic with your kid, you know, or really any of your, any of your real relationships, right? right. There's a, you know, there's the outside world and the, and, and the inside world. And the inside world is like, you don't want, you don't want the dynamics between you and the people who are closest to you to be at all infected by this superficial celebrity thing, right? It's, well, I it's think not, about that with Affleck a lot because he's, you know, his life is just covered in a totally different way that's yeah. really damaging, I think, in a lot of different ways. But especially, like, he's going to get coffee and there's yeah, they're, they're, people seeing if he looks all right. Or, yeah, oh, my God, he yeah. grew a beard. What's going on here? It's really and, intrusive. It's really intrusive. Particularly, you know, because, you know, part of the, you know, recovery is, is is you know, about anonymity, right? And that's a that's a crucial part of it. So yeah. somebody to be in that situation and have it and, and, and have the added pressure of, that whole element is just really, it's, it's, it doesn't feel fair, but it is what it is. What's your next thing with him? Well, we wrote something together that, uh, along with a, this unbelievable writer, uh, her name's uh, Nicole Holof Center, and she's just great. And uh, so the three of us wrote this um, this movie. It's about medieval France, and it was it's called The Last Duel, and it's about the last sanctioned duel in medieval France, which was between two knights, one of whom claimed the other raped his wife. And, and so it's this really this movie about perspective. And so Ben and I wrote the male perspectives and, and Nicole wrote the female perspective. And, uh, and I think it's really potentially could be really interesting. So that was the first time you've written something with him yeah. since 93, 94, 95. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, 90, when we start that one, 90, 93. Yeah. 93, we sold it in 94, then we kept working on it, and it came out in 97. Because you did the, you bought the Fritz Peterson thing, which I thought would have been an awesome movie. It's interesting. We talked about... I still uh, feel like you could do that one. I don't know. We, I, but, but I think we will write more. Like, we, 
it was interesting. Goodwill Hunting took us such a long time. Um, and I think we, we, we always told ourselves and each other, we just don't have time to write. We're never really in the same place for, for very long. Um, and then this one we wrote so fast. Yeah. And I think it's because in the intervening 25 years, we did nothing but make movies. Yeah. So we know so much more about it now. And, you know, it's just our, our, our process was so much more streamlined that without even trying to, we didn't set a deadline for ourselves. We didn't, we just, I just show up at his house or he'd show up at my house and we'd write for three hours. It's like, we'd take the kids to school or do we, and then we'd just go grab a coffee and go sit down and start working. And like, suddenly it was like, wait, we have 20 page. How, we have 20 pages. Like, I think they're good. I, yeah. Like I read them again. Like, I think these are good. And he's like, yeah, I know I do. I think these are good too. Suddenly we, we have 35 pages. And, and before we knew it, we had two thirds of our movie you know, and Nicole is every bit as fast. I mean, she's a professional writer. So yeah. She's great. And she's like, you know, faster than we are. And suddenly it's like, wait, we have 150 pages, guys. We got to, we got to pare this down. Um, you guys should have gone to like the Soho house and just like when the writers go and they write at the Soho house, just oh, got yeah. a table. <laughs> no, we just <laughs> would have caused a ruckus. I don't want to do it in public. Wait, we're now at the point, most important part of this podcast where you tell, the Red Sox ownership, how awful it would be if they lost Mookie Betts. We cannot lose Mookie I'll Betts. give you the floor. We, there's no world in which we can lose Mookie. That that would be... I'm more upset about this than just about anything right, right now. There is no world in which we can lose Mookie Betts. I'm still trying to understand it and wrap my head around it because you can look up all the figures and see how much money they make yeah. from the team. Yeah. Um. I'm sorry they spent some of the money maybe incorrectly or they have some regrets, but I don't feel like I have to lose out on Mookie Betts. Like I had Mookie penciled in for the next 12 years of my life. Yeah. Through 2031. I was like, well, that guy's going to be in my life. Yeah. He's, and a, my, he's my two kids. He's Mookie, a generational my wife. guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like he's got to stay in the Red Sox uniform. There's no, it's I, I, the first time you saw him in a uniform that wasn't a Red Sox uniform, do you think you'd cry? Well, right. You're old enough to remember this, how traumatic it was when Fisk came back oh, on the White Sox. That was honestly one of the worst. My my code to uh, my house in New York when we used, there used to be a keypad and it was it was uh, uh, it was seven two two seven. Really? Yeah. yeah. That was so because traumatic. We lost him to and he and he and he reversed the numbers and I just as a kid for some reason I saw that as like oh my god. It yeah, it was so like a heavy. personal attack yeah. on us. Yeah, but it was like, but it was a righteous one. Like, yeah. how dare we trade this guy? You know what I mean? It was like, he was the soul of, you know. Um, well, it was worse than that because they wanted him to leave and they mailed this contract a day late intentionally, which made him a free agent. I think if that listen, happened, we have, we that have, happened now, that but, would have been insane. But we have, and we have owner, we have a very different style of ownership, brand of ownership now too. Like we're very lucky. We're incredibly lucky. Well, that's why I'm so hurt by this. I don't know. I, I feel like they've, for the most part, made really good decisions. Yeah. I don't understand why they don't see this would be bad because you're talking, he's for people under 15, he's the most popular guy in the team. Yeah. Just yeah. Flat out. Yeah. He's the high number one, and then it's like whoever's next. Right, but right. Um, I'm, I think it's weird they don't see that part. I just hope he stays. I hope my my gut feeling is that they'll eventually realize. Oh wait, this would be absolutely idiotic. I we shouldn't do this. Yeah, I can't imagine they they wouldn't. I mean, I really can't. They've been they've been really smart about 
almost everything. They've been very smart. Come on, don't look skeptically at me. They've been no, incredibly I'm, smart. No, I'm agreeing with you. That's yeah. why I'm so confused by this. We've won four World Series in the last 15 years. It's amazing. They've made good decisions for them. The sale extension was not great. Probably wouldn't have done that one just because I didn't know what his health was like. Yeah. But for the most part, they've been really smart. That's why I'm but so confused. But tell me this. When, when, when they brought sale out in the ninth inning, it was great. game five. It was I, great. That was the filthiest thing I've ever seen. And I started laughing. I was like, oh, my God. It was the first time I ever allowed myself <clears throat> during any of these World Series runs to say, we're going to win before we won. Yeah. You know how you would never, ever do that? Like, I didn't do it when 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 the ground ball came back to Folk and he started running towards first <laughs> base. going to trip. Yeah, I was like, it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. I'm not saying it. But when they brought <laughs> Sale in in the ninth inning, I was like, that is nasty. That is disgusting. Well, I mean, it was just the filthiest thing to do. It's like, we're not going to need you tomorrow night, big fella. Right. Why don't you come in and pitch one inning when we're up by however many runs we are? And it's just the most demoralizing. And I loved it. It was pretty <laughs> I, great. I loved it. Yeah. But I remember the 06 when A-Rod hit Bronson Arroyo's glove. Yeah. And then Jeter goes around third. Somebody scored. And all the Red Sox DNA came back where it was like, oh, we're going to get completely fucked on this call. This is going to turn the series around. We're going to lose because right, right. they missed this play. And then they actually made the right call. They talked about it. Francona argued it. Yeah. And then it was like the calls reversed. A-Rod's out. And A-Rod did the whole, what did I do? Yeah, what did I do? What do you mean? Yeah. Um, and then it was, no, but it was like we're in a new world. Like I yeah. remember like going to the parade in uh, in 04. I drove up um, and uh, from New York with uh, Lucy wasn't my, we weren't married yet. And uh but we were together and we came up for the parade. I said, we have to be there. And my brother's kids were still little. So we went over to my dad's and we were, and they wanted to see him, the duck boats when they went into the Charles. So they were going to go down to the river. And I was like, I, I just, I got to run up to, I'm going to run up to Boylston street. I just, I'm going to see the duck boats twice. Yeah. Okay, they're going to go by. I'm going to wave and wave at all the guys. And then I'm going to run down to the river and I'll meet you. And I ran up by myself so that I could see the duck boats go by. And I sat, on the corner and like by myself. Yeah. Grown man. I was 34 years old and the, and the boats went by and I looked at those guys and I started crying. Really? I swear to God crying. And literally people are like, are you mad to <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I'm his brother. <laughs> I just looked like him. But I was so, because it felt like something had changed forever. Yeah. In a really incredible way and it is that thing in 06 where you go no you know what the fucking call is gonna go our way yeah because it, because it's fair we're right. gonna get a fair shake this time i remember the first time during that whole four game run tony clark hit that double down the line in one of those games it was a game four game five one of the extra inning games and it landed and then it bounced into the stands over just rolling around. Right, they would right, have scored. Right. <clears throat> and I remember when that happened going like, all right, mm. that's weird. Right. Normally right, we get right, fucked right. on that. Right. That's weird that that played out that way. Right. Um, and it was just a collection of moments like that. I So it might be that might be the moment, right, when the Matrix got taken over by like the teenager it's yeah. either that or 16 when the Chicago Cubs win finally and Donald Trump becomes president and like everything just goes, you go like, wait, there's a lot of unlikely stuff that seems to be happening. I would like, say it, the Cubs thing's weirder because that was what, six days before Trump? No, it was right then. It was literally, yeah. yeah it, all stuff like it was like, let's just change the dials really quickly. Let's just start. Let's just see what happens. See what happens to these guys. If all of their expectations are totally upset 
and we just see how they live. Like, let's see, you know, in, in, in that simulation where those, where those versions of those people live, let's just, let's take a look and see how they react to this. What are you going to, you turn 50 next year. What are you, what are you going to care about? How's your life going to change? I turned 50, uh, six weeks ago. Wow. It's fine. It's good. Water's nice. It's fine. Jump on in. It's great. Did anything change? No, you do. The one thing I thought of was I'm not in the 18 to 49 ad demo anymore. (laughs) (laughs) This is your last year in that demo where you're just going, oh, I'm in the demo now. That's just discarded by. Yeah. By advertisers. I, I had that conversation with my father years ago, probably 10 years ago. We were, we were, it was Christmas time. I, was, I had some movie coming out and we were driving up to uptown in a cab or, or no, in a, we would have been in a car if I was promoting stuff. And, uh, and, uh, well, I was probably going to do like a morning talk show or something. I don't know, but we're driving up like park Avenue. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, in the twenties and in the thirties and it, and we're going by bus stops with all these, all the movies that are coming out. And my dad's looking at him. He's quiet for a long time. He's funny. He goes, Matthew, geez, I don't want to see any of these movies that I'm seeing advertised on the bus stop. And I started laughing. I said, yeah. Pop, if you wanted to see any of these movies, then someone's losing their job. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> you're not the guy we're trying to get. Like, you know, and we started laughing about that. It's like, you're right. You're, 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 you're in this discarded demographic that goes like, I'm, I'm. But look at my dad now. He watches all three of those Chicago shows. They're on a row. Right. It's like Chicago Fire, Chicago, Chicago PD, Hope. and yeah. Chicago Med. Right, right, whatever. And he, and he watches them all in a row. And I'm like, which one's your favorite? And I, he was like, I just like them all. They're all, they're right. all really good. Are we good to go? Yeah. Yeah. Go. Okay. Um, was that an hour? Yeah. Jesus. I think we're good. Uh, that was fast. Ford versus Ferrari. Yes. November 15th. And then potentially one of the great best actor categories of all time. <laughs> it could be everybody. Yeah, no, nah, could I, be all I, your peers. I, it's so weird. I, I never thought of this movie like that. I thought of it like a like a a, a, a like a crowd pleaser, you know? I mean and, and it's the rare combo. It's the crowd pleaser that's also really good, which just doesn't happen that much anymore. Right, right. No, it definitely worked out. I'm really happy with it. But uh but it was supposed to come out in June. You know, and they held it for this season. So I think that's the right move. I hope so. It'll work out. We'll know on November. Things 16th. have worked out for you really since that Tony Clark thing. Maybe even a little bit maybe before that. Maybe that was yeah. Maybe, it maybe was the, <laughs> the Matrix code got rewritten for all of us. So. <laughs> Matt David, the sequel was good. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>